Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Surprise Jab Podcast. I'm your host, Zach Ruger, surprising you with new topics every single week and jabbing you with your daily dose of UFC. And that's right, ladies and gentlemen, we are back. It's been a while, not too long, but I believe I only recorded one episode last week on like a Wednesday or something. Might have been Thursday. I can't even recall. And there was no UFC going on. And, you know, it was my 21st weekend, so I figured I'd just t- do one episode last week. And I feel like it's I feel like it's just been longer than it should be since we've dropped one, but we're back. We've got all sorts of fun activities to talk about. I'm excited to be getting back into uh, podcasting. I love I love the Surprise Jab podcast. And we're back with UFC this week. Grant Dawson takes on Bobby Green in the main event Saturday night. Super random matchmaking right there, but happy to be getting some more fights. We're going to be uh, recapping week four of the NFL on today's episode. We'll probably preview uh, week five of the NFL next next episode, which I'll record later this week. Um, gonna be going over some fantasy things from uh, the past week, some of my top players, how I did, and of course going through game by game breakdown. We're also gonna be looking at ESPN's. It's either ESPN or the NFL's new um, power rankings for every team. So I think ESPN is just as reliable as NFL when it comes to ranking the teams week by week. We're also going to be going over some uh, UFC storylines to round out the end of the year. Had to have to throw a little bit of UFC in. I mean, we are the surprise jab. Jab is in a punch podcast. We got to go about that. And my favorite thing, we're going to be talking about the conspiratorial frame of mind. That's right. We're going to be talking about conspiracies a bit on this episode and maybe even on the next couple going over some actual conspiracies. But I got this book um, by this guy named Arthur Goldwag, who is a very popular author in this field of conspiracies called Secret Societies. And I thought it was super interesting, his perspective on just when you go about looking at conspiracies, the frame of mind that you enter when you start analyzing all that. So we're going to be talking about that, probably even mention a couple with that. But I mean, let's just kick things off by saying I'm 21 now. It's absolutely crazy. I had a very fun 21st, saw my parents, hung out with the boys, watched football, and um, did things that you do when you turn 21. But you know what? We're back, back to school, back to Back to reality of sorts. Was that the Eminem song? Back to reality. I'm talking about. Yeah, school. School's been going pretty good for me. Uh, this IBE Integrated Business Experience Program. It's been pretty eventful, pretty interesting. Uh, we have a loan presentation coming up, actually, to like bankers. We actually get real money and have to do stuff with them. I thought I was going to be a part of it, but I guess I'm not going to be, even though I'm probably one of the best public speakers of, uh, of our class. But hey, it does not bother me at all. I like seeing other people succeed. So let's get into this with, uh, should I start with the NFL or UFC? I think we're going to kick us off with a little bit of UFC talk. Uh, big event coming up. Uh, October 21st, UFC 294, Charles Oliveira versus Islam Makachev. The rematch, you also have Hamza Chimaev, Paulo Costa on there. I mean, that is going to be an absolutely massive event. It's going down in Abu Dhabi, United Emirates, October 21st. I believe main card starts at 2 o'clock p.m., 2 p.m. Eastern. So we'll be gearing up for that. But before that, we have two just regular UFC Apex cards, which basically means there's like, 200 people in attendance it's at like their performance institute and that card is going to be headlined by grant dawson and bobby green this upcoming weekend so uh i believe grant dawson's ranked number 10 in the lightweight division bobby green currently unranked 
Grant Dawson's 8-0 in the UFC with one draw. Bobby Green's coming off a big finish at Tony Ferguson. So that's the card we have coming up, but it's not what we're going to be talking about because ESPN posted this article about some of the major storylines to watch for the rest of the year. And, you know, it's all about rematches, vacant titles, uh, all sorts of stuff. And I figured, you know, I might as well jump on this, give my thoughts on some things. So we're going to answer a couple questions to kick off the episode. So for starters, um, what's what's the future of the UFC heavyweight division looking like? So the UFC heavyweight division, the 265, the big boys, the biggest weight class in the UFC Currently, current champ is John Jones. He defends his belt against number three ranked Stipe Miocic at UFC 295 at Madison Square Garden in New York City. That's going to be a huge event in November. But after that fight, both of those guys will probably leave. I don't know if John Jones is. I assume Stipe is for sure. So who who's here to take over the future of the division? So Obviously, Cyril Gaon going to be a staple of the UFC for a while, I believe. Coming off of his huge main event win in September. Absolute beast. I love I love Cyril Gaon. Um, Sergey Pavlovich, who will be the backup fighter for um, UFC 295, Russian badass. Sergey Pavlovich has finished, he's, I believe, 18-1. And he's currently on a six-fight round-one knockout streak in the UFC this guy is going to be a champion. I just don't know at what point, but he definitely will be. Uh, Tom Aspinall, I think, is one of the bigger names. So Tom Aspinall is currently ranked number four in the UFC heavyweight division. He He's fighting out of the UK, fighting out of England, and there's just so much hype about him. I mean, he he's I would consider him undefeated in the UFC. He has one injury loss to Curtis Blades where he tore his Achilles or he tore something in his knee 15 seconds into his main event fight last year. I don't really think that should count as a loss on his record. It does, though, unfortunately, but the, this guy comes back after a year off and knocks out Marcin Tybiora, who is the number 11 heavyweight in front of a sold-out London arena. And, oh, my gosh. Keep your, keep your ears out. Keep your eyes peeled on Tom Aspinall. Another name, number nine ranked, Halton Almeida, J-A-I-L-T-O-N-A-L-M-E-I-D-A. Halton Almeida, Brazilian fighter. He'll be headlining the UFC Sao Paulo card November 4th, which is going down in Brazil. He'll be taking on number five ranked, Curtis Blades. Halton Almeida has been on the come up now. Uh, came off the White's Contender Series, I believe, a year or so ago. Of his 19 victories, 7 by knockout, 12 by submission, 14 in round 1. This guy's 100% finish rate. He's 6-0 and or 5-0 and in the UFC. He's an absolute beast. And other than him, I mean, you have a couple guys like Alexander Romanov at 13, Martin Boudet at 15, but none of those guys are really the big hitters. I'm, your, your top five I just listed off. you got Cyril Gaon, Sergey Pavlovich, Tom Aspinall, Halton Almeida. That's actually four. So, I mean, those are the really the big names you're going to be hearing in the heavyweight division. But they just had this guy named Shamil Gazioff on the Contender Series, and this guy's undefeated. He's like 11-0, 10 knockouts, and he looks pretty dominant. So keep your, uh, keep, keep your um, I don't know what to say. What's the saying? Is it keep your ears alert, keep your eyes peeled, just keep, keep, uh, keep on guard? I don't know. I, I got to think of some saying, but take note of these names because these guys are here to stay. Without a doubt, if I could predict who will be champion after John Jones, because I don't think Stipe Miocic will. I'll have to go with Sergey Pavlovich. His, his power is just so insane, and he's so technical. He has great anti-grappling defense. I 
keep your eyes out for uh, Sergey Pavlovich. All right, let's move on from all these heavyweights. What else we got? Which rematches will the UFC greenlight going forward? Whew. A lot of rematches been going down lately. I personally don't like rematches. I, I like when we see new people fight each other. But, I mean, without a doubt, you're getting Alexa Grasso versus Valentina Shevchenko 3, the th a trilogy fight with current women's flyweight champion Alexa Grasso and Valentina Shevchenko, number one contender. Alexa obviously beat her earlier this year, but they fought to a controversial draw. I think I, uh, they fought to a draw on September 16th at UFC Noche. I do kind of understand why there was some controversy with the 10-8 in round number five, but I actually do understand it's because the judge who had it, I can't recall what judge had the fight in favor of Valentina at the moment, but he did not think Valentina should have won the fight, so he made it a draw by giving Alexa a 10-8. And it's a weird thought, but I it would have been so if it would have been basically if you gave Alexander Volkanovsky a 10-8 in that final round against Islam Makachev, because you thought, well, I mean, Islam's ahead on more rounds, but Volk's ending the fight more dominantly. So I kind of understand that, and th that is the one case where I do think a rematch is warranted. Um, a rematch we are definitely going to get is Sean Strickland versus Israel Adesanya in the middleweight division for the championship. Just because of how notable Israel Adesanya is, I personally would rather see Izzy fight Duplessis normally. Doesn't even have to be for the belt. And Sean Strickland fight for anyone. Winner of Jared Canyon and Roma Dolodize, just to spice it up. Or just have Sean Strickland versus Driscus Duplessis, who's the number two uh, middleweight contender, by the way. It's, it's, I just, when you keep doing these fights over and over again, it gets ridiculous. I mean, we go back to, I mean, UFC 286, you had Usman versus Leon Edwards, three. That felt unnecessary. I mean, Alex Pereira versus, actually, you know, I, I say unnecessary, but I think it's just because, you know, I feel like we need to give some up-and-comers some big fights. Sort of how Stipe and Daniel Cormier held up the heavyweight division for so long. Just with their rematches, they fought each other once a year, three years straight. And it just gets ridiculous. Um, Islam Makachev and Charles Oliveira is kind of what posed this question, I believe, since they'll be rematching only a year after they last fought. Uh, I do think that's going to be a very good fight. And I'm riding with Charles Oliveira. Even if I don't think he'll win, I got to ride with my boy. And by the time it kicks around, I'm going to convince myself he's going to win. Alexander Volkanovsky versus um, Islam Makachev is another rematch you could do. After he fights Iatopura, which I assume Iatopura, by the way, is the number five ranked contender in the featherweight division, and Alexander Volkanovsky is oh so good. I just I can't believe it. And uh, at, I mean at men's flyweight, Alexander Pantoja is defending his belt in December against number four ranked Brandon Rival. That's a rematch. They already fought, which is weird to think uh, that they've already fought what a year or two years ago, and now they're fighting for a championship. In my humble opinion, I think number three, Amir Al-Bazi, should have fought for the belt. But that's just how it goes. Uh, at bantamweight, I mean, Sean O'Malley, was he could be rematching number six ranked Marlon Vera, the only man to ever beat him. Uh, Sean O'Malley suffered his first loss to Marlon Vera, his only loss in 2020. So that's a fight he probably wants to get back. But then I look and say, okay, guys like Marab Dweveshelli probably deserve a title fight over Henry Sir. I mean, oh, Henry Sir, over Henry Cejudo too, but over Marlon Vera. So it gets super complicated when we start going division by division of all these rematches that keep, hap keep happening. I mean, what if Kamru Usman beats Bilal Muhammad? Because I think they might be headlining the December 2nd card, if I'm doing my math right. And let's say Colby Covington beats Leon Edwards. Do we do Usman Covington 3? I mean, it just gets so complicated. 
And when it gets down to, I mean, women's bantamweight, almost everyone's fought each other there. So you're going to be getting uh, some rematches there. But a lot of big ones coming up. And, you know, I do hope that we get some up and give some up and comers some chances. Speaking of women's bantamweight, it's going to actually answer our final question for our UFC portion of today's show. And that is can we fill some of these championship vacancies to end out the year? And. Well, that's referring to the women's bantamweight division and the men's light heavyweight division, who both do not have current champions. So we'll start with men's light heavyweight. Jamal Hill, unfortunately, having to vacate the belt after beating Glover Teixeira for it in uh, January of this year. Wow. Wow, 2023 is flying by. But yes, he, uh, I don't know if he tore his ACL. He did something. Jamal Hill out of action for now. But they currently have number one ranked Jiri Prochaska and number three ranked Alex Pajera fighting for the vacant belt at UFC 295 currently. So I'm very happy that fight is booked. I do not know if that, uh, I hope that they're able to actually fight. But with all these injuries that occur, I don't know if they're actually going to be stepping into the octagon. I hope they do. And I hope Jiri knocks out Alex Pajera. But what really poses this question is that women's bantamweight, since Amanda Nunes retired this summer, has had no update on who's going to fight for the vacant belt. I mean, you have number one Julia Pena, who's the most vocal in the division, but is coming off of a loss to Amanda Nunes. You have number two Hawkwell Pennington, who is kind of a boring fighter, is on a win streak, though. And then you have number three Myra Bueno Silva, who, despite submitting Holly Holmes in round two, tested positive for some drugs and is just not even looking too good. Number four, Ketlin Vieira holds a loss now to Rockwell Penton. Irene Aldala and Holly Holm both have losses. I mean, the women's bandweight division is a mess. But the thing about this is you could easily throw this on a fight card. You could easily have two random women main event and just fight for the vacant belt just to fill up some spots or just throw it on a pay-per-view to beef it up a bit. I mean, this would be perfect to throw on the UFC 297 card in January or the UFC 296. Actually, 296 is getting pretty full. But maybe you do it as a fight night in December. I can't really say. Uh, I personally feel that Myra Bueno Silva should fight Julia Pena for it. I feel like that would be the most competitive and entertaining of all our options. But it's it's just the women's bantamweight division is not as entertaining in the first place as other uh, UFC divisions. So it, it does get pretty complicated. But other than that, other than the women's bantamweight division not having a spot, I mean, the rest of the divisions shaping up pretty good. Zhang Wei Li, the women's strawweight champion, should be defending her belt against either John Chaonin or Tatiana Suarez, the number one and number two co- competitors. Um, I, I was hoping that would be at UFC China, which is going down December 9th, but that'll be headlined by Piotr Jan and Song Ye Dong. Piotr Jan, number five ranked men's bantamweight, Song Ye Dong, number seven. Injuries and just locations and stuff, they always play an impact, but uh, I hope that they can fight early 2024. Man, and UFC 300 right around the corner, too. Gosh, just stuff is, times are moving so fast nowadays, guys. It's it's actually kind of crazy. You know, I'm, I'm going to be graduated soon. You know, I mean, once this semester's over, I then have to figure out my classes for next semester, and then I'll have one more year of college. And I feel like I just got down here. I feel like I just got down here. That's how fast time goes. And as for UFC, time has been going pretty quick. I mean, they finished, I believe, 12 or 13 straight weeks of fights. And honestly, I did not mind a break this weekend because whatever UFC is on, I always feel an obligation to watch it now since I actually have a podcast. And I'm kind of working on TikTok a bit. I'm not really, I don't really post too much on that. Instagram, I post casually on that. But podcast is my main source of uh, getting my UFC thoughts. 
out to people. So that's all I got for today as far as UFC is concerned. Uh, This weekend, uh, of course, we'll be covering before. We'll be covering all the fights. But as for now, I mean, no no, uh, rankings updates today. Uh, the Daniels Contender Series goes down tonight. This is the second straight week I failed to cover it. So we should be back next weekend with coverage of Episode 9 of Dana White's Contender Series. But, I mean, that's not really too big of a deal. Just up-and-comers fighting. So we can easily bypass that. But I'll tell you what I did not bypass, and that was Week 4 of the NFL. The NFL, another big talking point. And, you know, despite being an MMA-focused podcast, I still love the NFL, and I'm not afraid to talk about it. Plus, with all my friends, it's one of the easiest things to talk about when we've had Jaden, when we've had Cole on, when we've had Ryan on, when we've had Dane on, all sorts of these guests. It's so easy to talk about NFL with them. That just flows off naturally. So we're going to recap week four of the NFL, go over uh, some fantasy stuff, go over each of the matchups, the team's current records. We're going to look at the current power rankings that the uh, NFL and ESPN have out. And then I think we end with our little conspiracy. That sounds like a good way to keep this podcast a rolling because I can do whatever I want. I'm the host. All right. So I'm t- not to sound ignorant. All right. But week four of the NFL was this past weekend. 2023 to 2024 season and we we kicked off the noon slate with my minnesota vikings getting their first win of the year oh my goodness this was long overdue we are now one and three carolina panthers now oh and four this just was oh my gosh just a stressful game i mean right out the back kirk Cousins throws a pick six from our end zone i was gonna cry but I didn't. I know I stayed through it. I stayed tough. And we ended up getting the win. And honestly, we were down at some point, I believe. What was it? 13-0? to zero? And then we scored 21 unanswered points, including two touchdowns in the third quarter. No score in the fourth for this game. But overall, very good performance. Justin Jefferson, six receptions, 85 yards, two touchdowns. Was a fantasy monster. Absolutely crazy in fantasy. I mean... I think he was unfortunately on a team I lost with, but he still was able to drop. Um, gosh, I'm trying to actually. He was on a winning team. I had Justin Jefferson dropping 26 fantasy points. Very much appreciative of that. Alexander Masson rushing for 95 yards, caught one pass. Cam Akers eh, rushed for 40 yards, only had five attempts though, so not too shabby. T.J. Hawkinson two two catches, 24 yards. But Kirk Cousins just did not have a good day. 139 yards, two touchdowns, two interceptions. Not our, not our best performance. Um, and we let Bryce Young throw for 204 yards, did not pick him off. Chubba Hubbard ran for 41 yards. Nothing much, man. Honestly, I the the one touchdown the Panthers got was on uh, defense. So it, they, they do not have a good offense. Panthers really do not have a good team overall. Vikings just need to get their stuff together. Need to get their you-know-what together. Adam Thielen, leading wide receiver for the team. Seven receptions, 76 yards. And Terrence Marshall Jr. catching nine passes for 56 yards. Good for him. Always happy to give Adam Thielen his credit. Because, I mean, he went to Minnesota State Mankato, which is where I go. Love that boy so much. So, yeah, with that, Minnesota Vikings now not even last in the NFC North. Not even last in the NFL. We are finally on the winning. We're on the board. We're on the board. Not not super good. I mean, one and three is still not a good start. 
But, I mean, Carolina Panthers 0-4. Very tough start for them. Uh, let's keep it rolling. Uh, Raiders took on the Chargers. And, man, Raiders gave Chargers a run for their money. But Justin Herbert had to, had to pull something out of his bag and get the victory. The L.A. Chargers win 24-17. to Raiders, though, Aiden O'Connell making his U- I was gonna say UFC debut. I'm so used to saying that. Making his NFL debut with Jimmy Garoppolo out for the week. Throws for 238 yards and an interception. Not the best day, but I mean, Josh Jacobs, 58 yards, one touchdown. He also had eight receptions for 81 yards. And Devon Hams caught eight balls for 75 yards. But it was the Chargers who got the victory. And honestly, not the most impressive stat sheet now that I'm looking at it. Joshua Palmer, leading wide receiver, three receptions, 77 yards. Keenan Allen caught one touchdown on his uh, three catches. And Justin Herbert, only 167 yards, a touchdown and a pick. Nothing much for him, but he did run in two touchdowns, so that's what got him a lot of fantasy points. I was happy about that. Chargers now 2-2, two and two, Raiders 1-3. and three. Yikes, Raiders have honestly looked progressively worse since week one. I don't really expect too much out of them. Ugh. Patriots uh, beat the, uh, oh my gosh, the Cowboys beat the Patriots. I was looking at the previous week. Cowboys blow out the Pats 38-3. to Just disgusting. Oh my gosh. Cowboys now 3-1. and Patriots 1-3. and um, The Patriots were able to get a field goal in the first quarter, and after that did nothing. Dak Prescott throws for 261 yards and a touchdown. Tony Pollard rushes for 47 yards. It's Jake Ferguson with seven receptions for 77 yards who leads the day. But it's this Dallas defense, man. They are just crazy. I mean, I believe they had. Did they have two touchdowns? I know uh, Lupke, he, uh, did he did he get a, um interception? Um, oh, there was a pick six, I believe, and a fumble recovery. So while this Dallas defense posted two more touchdowns, they probably have more points scored than the Patriots on this season. Uh, Mac Jones... 150 yards, two picks. Brutal stuff from him. And I mean, bro, Andre Stevenson, 30 yards for eight, eight. Oh my gosh, only 30 yards rushing. That's what it was. Hunter Henry leads the day, four receptions, 51 yards. The, oof, Bill Belichick, just retire. Don't even give this team the time of day. It's, oh my goodness. Just pitiful performance from them. Ugh. But But you know what? It's not too late for them to turn their year. Uh, I forgot if I touched on that the Lions beat the Packers on Thursday Night Football. I don't, I don't think I did. I think when I actually made my last episode, that game was about to go down. So, yes, the Lions are actually 3-1 and one now. Packers 2-2. Two and two. Lions lead the NFC North. Shout out to David Montgomery posting 121 yards on the ground and three touchdowns. He was an absolute animal in the victory. Jared got 210 yards, a touchdown, a pick. Not really doing too much for the team. Josh Reynolds actually actually leading the day with 69 yards receiving. Amon Ross St. Brown caught a touchdown. Sam Laporta, man, four receptions, 56 yards. I want more 20-point games out of you. And you know what? I'll give the Packers where it's due. I mean, Jordan Love, 246 yards, threw a touchdown, did throw two picks. Romeo Dobbs, though, nine receptions, 95 yards. Good stuff. Christian Watson caught a touchdown on one of two catches. So not too much going on for the Packers. Hopefully we can pass them in the standings if we uh, keep it keep it up because I hate when we're not, I hate when the Packers win and we lose. Packers are probably my least favorite team in the league. Vikings my favorite by far. We also had an 8:30 a.m. London game. 
I don't think I checked it. I think I was recovering from Friday night, but Jaguars beat the Falcons in Wembley, Wembley Stadium. Is that where it was at? I believe it had like 85,000 people. It was absolutely crazy. Um, Trevor Lawrence not having his greatest performance, honestly. Uh, I'm trying to find the stats here for a second. And we did find the stats. Desmond Ritter for the Falcons throwing 191 yards, touchdown, two picks. Bijan leading the day on the ground, 105 yards, rushing. Uh, Jay Smith, Janua Smith, wow, can't believe he's even still in the league. Six receptions, 95 yards, leads the day. But hey, it's the Jaguars, man. T-Law, 27 yards, a touchdown, not doing too much fantasy-wise. Travis Etienne gets 55 yards on the ground. Actually, Trevor Lawrence had 42 yards rushing. That's impressive. And it's Christian Kirk with eight receptions for 84 yards. That leads the day. Even Evan Ingram, the tight end, seven receptions, 59 yards. Calvin Ridley catches the one touchdown for uh, that Trevor Lawrence threw. Man, Falcons and Jags both 2-2 two and two now, I believe, heading into week five. Um, I actually did pretty good on my predictions overall. I predicted 12 of 16 games, correct? That is pretty impressive. If you ask me, I'm, I'm, if I'm being honest, um, I think my best ever was like 13 or 14, so getting pretty close. Uh, I think I actually won picks this week against my family, but I lost picks. To, uh, Dane, who we've actually on the podcast, had 13 of 16 picks, correct? So... Shout out to him. He he knows his football stuff. One of the games of the week as the Rams face the Colts. Both teams are now 2-2 two and two after the Rams win a thriller in overtime. Oh, my goodness. This was an absolutely heater. I mean, Matthew Stafford throws for 319 yards, touchdown pick. Kyreen Williams, 103 yards, two touchdowns. And Puka Nakua, my goodness, nine receptions, 163 yards, and a touchdown, including the game winner in overtime. That boy is a beast. Anthony Richardson, um, returning from his injury, throws for 200 yards and two touchdowns and rushed for 56 yards and a touchdown. A fantasy monster. Receiving-wise, Halleck Ogletree, three receptions, 48 yards, and a touchdown led the day. Molly Cox even caught one touchdown for 35 yards. Uh, You know, uh, Richardson, he's kind of like Lamar, doesn't throw the ball too much, more of a runner, but hey, Still looking pretty good in his rookie year. But, I mean, the Rams rallying Puka Nakua, easily the favorite for offensive rookie of the year right now. We'll see how he keeps going. And I've been seeing people saying he could make, he could break Calvin, Rid- Calvin, Calvin Johnson Megatron's like receiving record or something. I don't know about that. One of an, another one of our blowouts this week as the Ravens beat the Browns 28-3. to Ravens improved to 3-1. and Browns now at 2-2. Two and two. Good job for Lamar, 186 yards on the through the air, two touchdowns on the ground, 27 yards, two touchdowns. Posting a four-touchdown game, Lamar is a beast. Gus Edwards, 48 yards rushing. Justice Hill, 33 yards rushing. Mark Andrews, though, five receptions, 80 yards, two touchdowns, doing his thing. Zay Flowers, three receptions, 56 yards, two. This Browns team, absolutely horrendous with Deshaun Watson out. Dorian Thompson-Robinson, the rookie, stepping up with 121 yards and three picks. Wow, very bad. Rushing-wise, Pierre Strong Jr. actually having more yards than Jerome Ford. Ugh, just a bad day overall. David Njoku leads the day, six receptions, 46 yards. Browns kind of getting worse week by week. Let me tell you also, he's Keeps getting worse. The Bengals, the team that was supposed to be one of the top three in the AFC, lost to the Titans 27-3 to this week. Uh, just another terrible performance. Joe Burrow throws for 165 yards. That's it. 
20 completions, 165 yards. That's not good. That's not going to cut it if you want to p- compete with the better teams. Joe Mixon, 67 yards, rushing, did his part. Jamar Chase kind of re- kind of returned to his form, seven receptions, 73 yards. I don't know. I think uh, T. Higgins actually got hurt in this game, so bad stuff for them. But, man, shout-out to Derrick Henry returning to his form. 22 carries for 122 yards and a touchdown. Even caught a pass for 11 yards and threw a touchdown pass from two yards out. I think it was Nakeen Westbrook or Jay Weil, uh, Josh Weil, who caught that. So, man, they were doing their stuff. Ryan Tannehill, 240 yards, a touchdown and an interception. And D-Hop had four receptions for 63 yards. The Titans now competing in the AFC South, I believe they're from. I can't recall. Another single-digit matchup is the Buccaneers beat the Saints 26-9. to I could not believe it. The Bucs are now 3-1. and one. Baker throws for 246 yards, three touchdowns, and interception. Chris Godwin taking over for the day. Eight receptions, 114 yards. Mike Evans, only three receptions for four yards. Very pitiful performance and the Saints oh man the Saints had no idea what they were doing Derek Carr 23 for 37 127 yards I believe he got hurt Taysom Hill came in didn't do much Jameson Winston came in just threw an interception on the one pass he threw Alvin Kamara only rushing for 51 yards in his return I mean Saints are looking rough not going to lie I'll tell you who wasn't looking rough that was the Dolphins and the bit I mean the Bills, the Dolphins, the Dolphins didn't look bad. The Dolphins look good, but this Bills team, they got good defense. They're now 3-1. and one. Dolphins now 3-1. and one. Tua, 282 yards, a touchdown interception. Devin Achaney, I mean, this rookie is good. 100, 101 yards and two touchdowns on the ground. Tyreek Hill caught three passes for 58 yards. Not much going on through the air. Braxton Berrios, six receptions and a touchdown. Led the way for them. But Josh Allen, four touchdowns through the air, one on the ground. He posts a five-touchdown game. Stephon Diggs, 120 yards, three touchdowns. Crazy stuff. Gabe Davis, three receptions, 61 yards, and a touchdown. Bills team looking good, 48 points. I would say second most of the season because I just remembered that 70-point game. So not even close to most of the season, but... There's that. Not to linger too much on this. I mean, Eagles beat the Commanders in an overtime heater, 34-31. to 31. Sam Howell looking better than he did the week before, 290 yards and a touchdown. But Jalen Hurts, 319 yards, two touchdowns through the air, even rushed for 34 yards. A.J. Brown, wide receiver, posting 175 yards and two touchdowns. Good stuff. Eagles now 4-0. and oh. I'll tell you one of the more shocking blowouts of the week. Sorry to Seth, my roommate, but the Steelers get blown out by the Texans in insane fashion. Steelers and Texans both two and two now. I believe I heard the, um, what's it, Stephen A. Smith talking with Shannon Sharp on the Today Show or whatever, that the Steelers' offense never crossed their own 50-yard. They never crossed the 50-yard line onto the other side of the field. That is an insane stat. Kenny Pickett throws 114 yards and an interception. I believe they even benched him for Mitchell Trubinsky at the end. Najee, 14 carries, 71 yards, and caught one pass for 32 yards. Was the only person doing anything on this team. And shout out, though, to the Texans, man. C.J. Stroud, the rookie, the best rookie quarterback so far. 306 yards, two touchdowns, ran for 16 yards. Damian Pierce even ran for 81 yards. And Nico Collins, 168 yards, two touchdowns. Have a day, wide receiver, man. Have a day. 
I love it. 49ers, now one of the remain the other um undefeated team beats the Cardinals 35 to 6. Teen, um, Christian McCaffrey, three touchdowns, rushing one, receiving four touchdown game. 106 yards on the ground, 71 through the air. This guy's an animal. Brock Purdy, one incompletion. 20 for 21 for 283 yards and a touchdown. This 49ers team is freaking good. Brandon Ayuk, six receptions, 148 yards. Gosh, they got a good one coming up next week. I think they play, I can't recall who they play. But I know the 49ers, let's actually check right now, because I know the 49ers have a tough game coming up. I believe they may be playing the Cowboys. So, if they, oh my gosh, if they play the Cowboys, that would be interesting. Um, yes, they actually, wow, week five, we get the 49ers versus the Cowboys in primetime. I love to see it. I really do. Very exciting matchup there. And um, let me just tell you something about the Cardinals, though. They may be... They may be 1-3, but Joshua Dobbs, 265 yards and two touchdowns. It's playing some good ball. Marquise Brown caught seven receptions for 96 yards. And heck, you even had Michael Wilson, wide receiver number 14, seven receptions, 76 yards, two touchdowns. Have a gay. Have a gay. Have a game. Good for him. Now round out our slate of games as we get into our third Sunday night football game, Chiefs and Jets. This game started out rough. It was 17-0 in the first quarter thought this was gonna be a blowout but guess what Patrick Mahomes 203 yards a touchdown two interceptions not getting it done man the Jets Zach Wilson posting a better stat line at 245 yards and two touchdowns Chiefs do win the game 23 to 20 Isaiah Pacheco leading the charge 115 yards and a touchdown on the ground Travis Kelsey through the air six receptions 60 yards receiving um, not much, not really much from the Jets. I mean, Alan Lazard had three catches for 16 yards and touchdown. Garrett Wilson had nine receptions for 60 yards, but man, they almost rallied. Comes down to the final play. Chiefs were able to escape, get a field goal to take the lead, and they get a generous call from the refs. And I know that this whole Taylor Swift thing is definitely influencing the NFL's uh, rooting for the Chiefs. And they always have been kind of nice to the Chiefs in years past, uh, past couple of years, I'll say. Uh, they, they like to give them generous calls. I don't know why. They, it's all probably money manipulated. Or maybe we're just conspiracy theorists, which we'll get to in a second. How about that? Let's round out with our Monday Night Football game. I, I think I was watching that Gen V show with my roommate when this game was on. That's actually a really good show. Gen V. It's like a spinoff of The Boys. Gosh, we'll have to review some of those episodes. But yes, the Seahawks beat the Giants. Seahawks now three and one. Wow, the Giants one and three, a bad one and three too, a very bad one and three. Geno Smith, 110 yards and a touchdown, not doing much. Kenneth Walker, 79 yards and a touchdown. DK Metcalf, 34 yards and a touchdown. Yeah, defense was really the main key in this. Daniel Jones, 203 yards and two two interceptions, very bad. Did have 66 yards rushing. Leading receiver, Matt Breida, five receptions, 48 yards. Yeah, this Giants team is straight garbage. I, I don't even know if I want to give them any time of day speaking about them, which I'm not. And I know for a fact I will not be picking up for a majority of games this season. Man, that was week four. Some good moments. Uh, let me just touch on some of the top fantasy performances as I went two and two this week. Two wins, two losses in my one random league, 12 man, 4-0 now. Jalen Hurts dropping 24 points for me. Isaiah Pacheco getting 24 points for me. Justin Jefferson, 26 points. And the Ravens, D, 17 points. Even T-Bass, 14 points. 
on uh, in my kicker spot. My big L, though, David Montgomery on my bench. 34 points from David Montgomery on my bench. That's not going to cut it. And the team is looking not too bad in week two, week five. I know David Montgomery will be reentering the lineup, but man, good, good, good. I'm really good in that league, but I have like there's like nothing I have at stake in that league. Uh, the one league that I have money in is my ten man twenty dollar buy in, and I'm two and two. But uh, I I did win in that league this week, so I should be happy about that. J- uh, D- Darren Waller caught a pass to like end the game, and that is what gave me the win. Christian McCaffrey forty eight point seven points. One of the top fantasy performers of the week. He was the only good thing about my team, if I'm being honest. I mean, I had Trevor Lawrence on my bench who put up 16 points, but I had Jared Goff who put it up 11. So, I mean, that five points, it makes a huge difference, but not enough to really be notable. We got to keep rallying in that league, but we're 2-2, two and two, so I'm not too sad about that. Tell you what I am sad about my other two leagues, where I am 1-3 in one of them and 0-4. Oh my Cato Boys League with all my main Cato friends. I'm one in three. Team was just atrocious last week. But you know what? Justin Herbert, 23 points. He did his thing. Uh, Tyreek Hill only posting 10 points, though, kind of killed me. Damian Pierce, 11 points. I'll take it. It's a 12 man league. But I mean, the 49ers defense, one point against the Cardinals. I mean, come on. Come on, man. My big L for this team was Kai Herbert being a Khalil, being on the bench, posting 22 points. But I may have Cooper Cup back this week, guys. I heard he might be returning in week five. That would be really huge, but it'd be interesting to see how they use Puka after that. And in my four-man, or actually my six-man All-Star League, the team just posted a dud 83 points when I was projected 134. 83 points when I was projected 134. Just atrocious. Puka, the only good thing, 31 points. I mean, other than that, I mean, Mahomes at 13, but that's not enough. Derrick Henry on my bench, 24 points. Terry McLaurin on my bench, 22 points. Kyrene Williams on my bench, 27 points. I just can't catch a break in this league, and it just it don't get better from here. But you know what? We'll keep working at it. We'll review the fantasy teams before uh, the game on Thursday, and then we'll let you all know uh, where we're at. But yeah, I love fantasy football. Even when you lose, I still think it's fun to partake in it, to participate. And plus, it gives you something to root for and talk about when you're with your friends or watching the game. If no one knows how... To like get into fantasy football, I mean, you can still get into it. I think you can join a league uh, up to the halfway point of the season. I really do encourage you to do it. I mean, you basically just you start. First off, you just join a league. Can, can, can be difficult at first. You can even start a random league and just get random people, and it works. You start by drafting a team. You always want to make sure you have a balanced number of team. I mean, it tells you what players you need, so you can do that. And for your bench, I mean, there really is no strategy to a bench. I'd say you always want to have at least a starting backup running back and starting backup wide receiver or also get caught with some bad backups like which always happens to me it seems like but hey after that you just kind of put in players every week you gotta check your team every week but uh you kind of have that tuesday to tuesday and wednesday to essentially do that you have little two-day breaks but other than that thursdays mondays and sundays are your are your days for games so easily doable easily doable i mean i got my girlfriend into it she loves it uh, actually, there was some super random moment. You know, fantasy football, I mean, football in general is known more as a boy sport. And I'm sitting in my class, and I'm talking to this one kid I know. And he goes, Zach, who plays this upcoming uh, week? And I go, oh, it was, I think it was Thursday. He said, who plays tonight? And I said, oh, the Packers and the Lions. And this girl turns to us and goes, oh, yeah, I got Aaron Jones in tonight. I hope he does better than uh, he did last week. We both kind of looked at each other like, what? You play fantasy football? She's like, yeah, like showed us her team. And I was like, wow, that's just kind of comical. I always like seeing that stuff. 
But yeah, they'll uh, they'll do it for uh, week four for the NFL, even for fantasy football. Nothing left to really cover there. But I think we end it. We end our little NFL talk with the power rankings. I always like looking at the power rankings, seeing if teams went up or down. So basically, the power rankings. This goes for anything. This goes for any sport. Any like uh, this goes for food. This goes for classes, colleges, states, countries. I mean, you can power rank anything. But the NFL power rankings basically every week. They change the ESPN NFL. They change where they have the teams ranked, and it says where they were ranked last week and where they're currently ranked and their record, just to give you. Uh, it also lists their biggest issue or, or biggest uh, good thing. I don't know. We'll talk We'll talk about that. So let's kick it off. The week four power rankings for the NFL season, 23 to 24. Number 32, the Chicago Bears. Wow, good, good. The Chicago Bears suck. Oh, and four. The Bears have only sacked a QB twice in their first four games. That is terrible. Easily the biggest issue on defense is rushing the passer. I mean, their defensive efficiency is 30th. They gave up a 21-point lead to the um, Broncos this past week. Actually, I don't think I even covered that Broncos-Bears game. But, I mean, the Broncos. Broncos basically rallied against the Bears. Justin Fields is looking great. He had three touchdowns and just completely fell apart. Very sad stuff there. I know a lot of Bears fans, my whole uh, extended family is Bears fans, and it just sucks for them. They were 32 last week, they're 32 this week, and they're 0-4, which is terrible. A team currently dropping a spot is the Carolina Panthers, who were 30th last week, are now 31st. They are 0-4. Their biggest issue on defense is definitely the run defense. They uh, they have given up, oh my gosh, over 500 yards. Um was that true? What the heck? When the Pan- what the Panthers can't do consistently is stop the run. Only five teams have given up more than their f- oh my gosh, five hundred forty-five yards rushing they've given up. That's 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 very bad. If no one knows football lingo, that is very bad. Uh, it's constantly keeping opponents in manageable down and distance situations. Ultimately, will impact the back end of the defense, says David Newton. And I don't know what he's talking about, but Carolina they just don't have a good team overall. Like stat, like player wise, they just don't have a good team. They changed too many things in the offseason. I mean, Adam Thielen's good. But he was he's a wide receiver two or three, I mean, at this point in his career. I mean, Bryce Young, he's trying to do his thing, but CJ Stroud and Anthony Richardson are looking way better than him. And honestly, no you can't tell me I can't I don't think I can name someone on the defense. I think Brian Burns is injured now. I can maybe name him. It's just atrocious. The days of Luke Keekley are over. I'll tell you a team that jumped up this week, though. The Denver Broncos now picking up their first win of the season. They're 1-3. They uh, move up a spot from 31. Good for them. Still not the best team. But, you know, after giving up 70 points the previous week, I'm happy to see them rec- uh, recover of sorts, if you want to call it that. Hanging to the number 29 spot is the Las Vegas Raiders, who actually dropped down from the 27th spot. They are now ranked 29th. Their biggest issue on defense is the relative lack of takeaways. That's right. They just have not been getting any takeaways. Uh, their their first was this past weekend. They were able to get one pick. That that, that was honestly it. That was honestly all they could do was get one pick against Justin Herbert. And other than that, they just cannot force turnovers. Team's not even that good, personally. I mean, you just see errors when they're playing. And Jimmy Garoppolo, Aiden O'Connell, is not a strong QB room, just going to be honest. 
Number 28, and it is just so crazy to see this team dropping, is the New York Jets. They've dropped now. They were 24th last week. They're now 28th. They just, you know, they gave the Chiefs a run for the money towards the end. But this team was kind of being held together by Aaron Rodgers, and it's essentially falling apart. I, I don't even know what they can do. They just have to stick it out, maybe hope for more next season. But they just keep losing. They just keep losing. Number 27 in the power rankings is the New England Patriots, who drop six spots from the 21st spot after getting blown out by the Cowboys. It just, oof. Mac Jones clearly needs help. He's just not been looking good. The defense can't get us. This was the number one fantasy defense last year. And this defense is just not the same as it was. Definitely need some help. Patriots at 27. I like it. New York Giants dropping down from the 23 spot to 26. They currently rank 31st in defensive efficiency, so second to last. Their biggest issue, pressuring the QB. They just cannot even get pressures, which gives people like um, when they played Dak Prescott time to throw the ball. Who did they play? Geno Smith time to throw the ball. This team is just falling apart. They're 1-3. They're one wins over the Cardinals. Ugh, Cardinals. Cardinals are supposed to be tanking, but no. It's the Giants who fall to the number 26 spot. Bengals, this one's crazy. Bengals at 25. They fall from the 18 spot last weekend. This team was in the top three or five to start the season. I have no idea what is going on with this Bengals team. It is. It is embarrassing. Joe Burrow is not playing up to his standards. And Jamar Chase is that. This is just getting caught in the crossfires. And this defense is not good. The Bengals defense needs help. I'll tell you a team that jumped up two spots, though. The Minnesota Vikings. They jumped from 26th to 24th. They're now 1-3. My Vikings are about to rally and win the Super Bowl. I never give up hope. I'm an optimistic Vikings fan. Never count them out. Coming in at number 23 this week is the Arizona Cardinals, who jump up from the number 25 spot. They're 1-3 currently, but, man, you know I love Josh Dobbs. There's something about how bad this team is. I just find it so fun to watch them play, personally. The, the, you know, I don't know if Kyler Murray's going to return this year, the starting quarterback for the Cardinals, but, you know, I'm, I'm riding with Joshua Dobbs, man. He's projected 18.7 points in fantasy of coming into week five. I don't know what. I'd, I might pick him up, man. I might start Josh Dobbs just to do it. Coming in at number 22, oof, Atlanta Falcons were now at 2-2 two and two and dropped from the 16 spot. Their biggest issue on defense, according to uh, ESPN, is sacking the quarterback. The Falcons, with five sacks, are not bringing quarterbacks down, a familiar lament from the past few seasons. Yeah, you know what? Bijan, he's been looking pretty good. Um, do, do I say Desmond Ritter's been looking good? I personally don't think so. I mean, Drake London does his thing. Kyle Pitts has yet to break out. Falcons are not the best team. But Bijan Robinson, the rookie from Texas, looking good. Coming in at number 21, who jumped up from the 29 spots, the Tennessee Titans, an eight-spot jump. They're now 2-2. Two and two. They've low-key been rallying. I mean, big wins over the Bengals and the Chargers, two, uh, two teams who are notable in the AFC. Happy for the Titans, um, but just fantasy-wise, you never know what to expect. One week, uh, Derrick Henry gets two points. The next week, 24 points. That's just how it works in the NFL. Let's get into our top 20, where the Houston Texans also jump up eight spots. They were ranked 28th last week. They're now ranked 20th. They're 2-2. Two two. C.J. Stroud has been looking good. Tank Dell and Nico Collins are 
oddly two of the best wide receivers in the league, clearly. Damian Pierce, Devin Singletary, not a bad running back room. Obviously, the offensive line has some issues. The defense has some issues. But, man, C.J. Stroud is looking like he's going to be a good quarterback. Heading into 19 is the Pittsburgh Steelers, who drop eight spots from 11 to 19. They're now 2-2, two and two, and this loss to the Texans was atrocious. I mean, here's a team who beats the Raiders. Um, who, who did the Steelers beat? Um, they beat the Raiders and the Browns, right? They beat the Raiders and the Browns, two teams I feel they always beat, and then they lose to the Texans. It just seems fitting when a team that should technically win does not. So Steelers definitely need some, uh, they definitely need to fire Matt Canada. They have a horrible offensive coordinator. The offense is just not really loaded, personally. No offense. Uh, my roommate is a huge Steelers fan. I should add that context. But you know what? The defense, they do have TJ Watt, who is probably the best defense player in the league, or one of the best. Heading into number 18, we have the New Orleans Saints who dropped down from the number 15 spot. They're now 2-2. Two and two. Their biggest issue has been tackling. They've been letting guys burn them. They let the Bucs burn them. I mean, how about that? I can't wait till we see where the Buccaneers land on this list. But yeah, the Saints, just another team. I just I don't know what the missing piece is. You have Chris Olave, Rashid Shahid, Michael Thomas. You have good wide receivers. I mean, you even got Jimmy Graham, don't you? You even got Jimmy Graham. You got a, you know, Derek, Derek Carr's a decent quarterback. James Winston, former top two pick. I mean, I, I don't know what's going on with the Saints. They really, they need help, but I cannot place the blame somewhere. Alvin Kamara, uh, not really looking like what it used to be. Could just be the jitters from coming back off of his little suspension. But the Saints, we'll see what you produce the rest of the season. Heading into number 17, making a three-spot jump from 20 is the Indianapolis Colts, 2-2 uh, two and two now. Uh, they know they suffered a loss to the Rams, but, I mean, they looked so good in that win. Anthony Richardson, the Florida QB, he's been looking great. And, hey, Zach Moss, still a beast as always. Michael Pittman doing his thing. Mo Ali Cox even catching a touchdown. So, Colts now at 17. Happy to see it. At number 16, making a one-spot jump, is the Washington Commanders. That's right. Despite um, losing this week to the Eagles, I mean, the, the Commanders, even when they were the Redskins, Always gave the Eagles a run for their money. They're now 2-2. Two and two. I think Sam Howell is slowly adjusting into the league. Scary Terry, Terry McLaurin looking pretty good. Brian Robinson Jr. looking good on the running back scene. I'm happy uh, happy for commanders. They find themselves at the 50% mark of the NFL. Getting into the top 15, we have the Los Angeles Rams who jump up from the number 22 spot. They're now at 2-2. Two and two. Their uh, biggest issue on defense, according to ESPN, is taking the ball away. Through four games, the Rams only have two takeaways. An interception in Week 3 and a fumble recovery in Week 4. This is something that's continued from last season, and L.A. is actually tied for 28th in the NFL in takeaways this season and tied for 24th in turnover differential, minus 3. Ugh. Rams got big games coming up. Uh, they believe they face the Eagles, and then they face the Cardinals, who oddly seem to do good, and they even have the Steelers, who uh, they should, of, the, of that slate, they should win probably two of those. But uh, the Eagles game will be tough, but Puka Nakua's looking good. Kyron Williams looking good. Matthew Stafford adjusting to his new, younger lineup. Hitting the, hitting the rankings at number 14 is the Green Bay Packers, dropping down from the number 12 spot. They've just had some horrible run defense. I just, uh, David Montgomery ran all over them. I know when they played the Falcons, Bijan Robinson ran all over them. They just need to kind of work on that because they got a good offense, man. Jordan Love is not a bad QB. 
Jaden Reed, Christian Watson, Romeo Dobbs, I mean, Aaron Jones, A.J. Dillon. This is a pretty good offense. It's oddly the defense, despite having Jair Alexander that needs to step it up. At number 13, the Jacksonville Jaguars, they jump up from the number 19 spot. This team is now 2-2, two two, a huge win in um, London at Wembley Stadium. Looking pretty good. This is this past week is the type of Trevor Lawrence performance I want to see week in and week out. Plus, Travis Ntn, I mean, Tank Bigsby, very good locker room for the running backs and wide receivers. I mean, Christian Kirk, Calvin Ridley. Um, who's another big one? Who's another big one? No, it's not coming to mind. Zay Jones, yeah. Good, good wide receivers, good running backs. Jaguars at 13. Chargers. Moving up from 14 to number 12 spot. That's right, L.A. Chargers at number 12. They're now 2-2. Two and two. Uh, Glad they get a little bye week, though, because Justin Herbert apparently tweaked his finger or something. I don't know what went down there. Cleo Mack having a big week, six sacks, gets them up to the number 12 spot. I really like this offense. I really do. I mean, Kelly may not be the best. Josh Kelly might not be the best backup running back in the league, but he's filling in for Austin Eckler. When Austin Eckler gets back, this offense is going to tear it up. Head into number 11, we have the Cleveland Browns who drop, drop, wow, drop down from the number 9 spot. They're now uh, at 11. How about that? This Browns team, it's been a weird one this year. They're 2-2, two and two, and they're actually number 1 in uh, defensive efficiency, but they just, they're tied for 24th with forcing turnovers. They have three turnovers through the first four games, despite having just an incredible defensive pressure. Their defense has looked amazing. I just think this offense needs some help. This offense needs some help, especially at the quarterback position. You guys clearly overplayed Desha- overpaid Deshaun Watson. Definitely not overplayed. He could use some more playing time. Dorian Robinson having a rough first career starter experience. Um, but yeah, Nick Chubb out for the year, not looking good. But Jerome Ford, very good backup. Get Amari Cooper out there. He's a good wide receiver. This Browns team can actually do pretty good this year. We'll see how they adjust. Let's get into our top 10 with the number 10 from last week, the Seattle Seahawks. They're now 3-1. and one. They're 27th, though, in defensive efficiency. Their biggest issue, probably um, stopping third downs. But honestly, this offense been looking pretty good. DK Metcalf, Tyler Lockett still tearing it up. Kenneth Walker coming into his own. And Geno Smith, man, still running things in Seattle. Happy for the Seahawks. Coming in at number 9, making a jump from the 13th spot, is the Tampa Bay Bucks, who were supposed to be in the running for Caleb Williams, but now find themselves 3-1. and one. Number 10 in defensive efficiency. According to ESPN, their biggest issue in defense is explosive pass plays. I don't even know if I can, you know, that, that's obviously an issue, but they've come out. They've beaten the Vikings. They've beaten the Saints. Who else did they beat? I think they lost to the Rams, but I know they beat another team. Was it the Panthers? I can't even recall. Baker's been playing out of his mind. Chris Godwin, Mike Evans, absolute killers. And even Rashad, Rashad White looking pretty good as their RB1 in Tampa. Good for the Bucks, man. Make it a little jump. Keeping their spot at number eight is the Detroit Lions, three and one. This is one of the best teams in the NFC. Uh, NFL is kind of bold, but NFC for sure. Uh, the leaders of the NFC North at the moment. I mean, Aiden Hutchinson has told three point five sacks so far on the season. Twelve for the 12, 13 of the full season, actually. Um, so thirteen, three point five of those out of Aiden Hutchinson. Wow. So it's trying to read stats and article format are kind of goofy but hey you know apparently their biggest issue is rushing the passer but it doesn't sound like that is you know but the Lions pass rush with win rate is 32.3 percent oh 
So almost 70% of the time they're getting blocked. But, hey, you know what? That Lions offense looking very good. Jameer Gibbs, David Montgomery. I, I like him. I like him. Keeping their spot at number seven as well is the Baltimore Ravens. Three and one now. Lamar coming off of a huge weekend. What did he get? Four or five touchdowns I mentioned earlier. He's been looking good. I mean, the running back room continues to shift after J.K. Dobbins' injury. Odell Beckham, I believe, is out too. Obviously some big hits, but you still have Mark Andrews. You still have you have Zay Flowers now. Gus Edwards doing his thing. I like these Baltimore Ravens team, man. Keeping their spot at seven. Heading into the number six spot, a huge drop. They were number two last week. They're now number six after losing 48-20 to to the Bills. That's right. It's the Miami Dolphins. Their biggest issue last week was, without a doubt, third down defense. Uh, They've been actually allowing teams to convert 46% of their fourth down attempts. That's actually tied for the eighth eighth worst rate in the NFL. And, you know, if if Jalen Ramsey is obviously out for the foreseeable future. He did suffer an injury. But this offense is so good. This is one of the best offenses I've seen for the Miami Dolphins. I mean, Devin Achani, Raheem Mostert, Jalen Waddell, uh, Tyreek Hill. I mean, Braxton Berrios. And Tua Tagovailoa leading the charge. But this defense really needs to step up to help help with this offense. Because if not, they will not make it far. At the number five spot, jumping up from the number six last week is the Dallas Cowboys. I mean, three and one. Another blowout victory. This is America's team, according to people. Dallas has been looking good. Let's see how they keep going. I mean, they're apparently their biggest issue is run defense. But, I mean, they've been able to negate that with their picks. That's what I was going to say is their touchdowns. This defense is incredible. At number four, that was uh, this team was number four last week, is the Kansas City Chiefs at 3-1. and one. Their biggest issue on defense is lack of takeaways. They are sixth though in defensive efficiency, so I won't knock them too much. I mean, they've beaten Justin Fields and Zach Wilson the last two weeks, and they got Kirk Cousins, Russell Wilson, Justin Herbert, Tua Tagovailoa, and Jalen Hurts all coming up soon. So we'll see how um, those QBs do. They all are kind of uh, takeaway prone. Kirk, unfortunately, this year, Justin Herbert, same, but uh, Russell Wilson seems to always throw picks. But um, yeah, this Chiefs team, they look good this week, despite Kind of having it come down to the wire, you know. And sometimes these defenses just give in because every offense is good in the NFL. At number three, jumping up from the number five spot is the three and one Buffalo Bills. Their biggest issue on defense: the loss of Tre'Davious White, the cornerback. He is out sadly, torn right Achilles. But you know this offense has been looking incredible. Bills still have a good defense. I mean, Milano, I think it's just every time I turn on a Bills game, I feel like Milano's doing something. The wonderful uh, linebacker. Bills, happy for you all the way up to three. At number two, jumping up from the number three spot is the Philadelphia Eagles. They're 4-0. They have just, Jalen Hurts is an absolutely be- an absolute beast. I mean, this is a team that made it to the Super Bowl last year. They want to get back there last year. They're 12th in defensive efficiency. Their base issue on defense is probably their pass defense. But, you know, this offense really does make up for it. Now let's get into our number one team. They were number one last week. They are just so, so good. The San Francisco 49ers. Obviously, the biggest issue on defense, red zone efficiency. They're allowing 66.7% of their opponents to reach the red zone. But this offense is incredible. Chris McCaffrey can't be stopped. Brock Purdy went from Mr. Relevant to being the guy, the QB in, in uh, San Francisco. Debo, Ayuk. Kittle, the weapons don't stop through the air. I love this 49ers team. They're definitely going to go far. And that's your power rankings, ladies and gentlemen. That is your power rankings for this past week. 
pretty interesting. Um, I, I'm not really too surprised in anything. I, I'll say the one thing that does surprise me is the big drop-offs of sorts. Drop in eight spots, jump in eight spots. Um, I always find that very interesting, just judging by what they go on. But, you know, I just want the Vikings to get out of the 20s, get into the um, teens, get into the teens. We're going to work our way up, so I'm not, too ner- I'm not too nervous about that just yet. But, yeah, NFL, super fun, super interesting. It was a pretty good week. Week four was pretty good. It was it was honestly the best week of football, I'd say. Um, whether that was, I was kind of buzzing throughout um, Sunday. But, um, yeah, good stuff there. And, wow, we've already hit the hour mark of the podcast. I, I'm actually going to take a quick break, and then I think we get into our little conspiracy talk. I'll dive more into that in a second. But, uh, yeah, just hold on for me for a minute. And we are back. So yes, we our surprise topic, our final topic of this episode is the conspiratorial frame of mind. And this is just kind of an excerpt from Arthur Goldwag's, Goldwag's book, Cults, Conspiracies, and Secret Societies. Arthur is a freelance writer and editor who lives in Brooklyn, New York, and he's the author of The Bellinet Guide to Kabbalah and Isms and Ologies, both which are notable books in this field of mystery, if you want to call it that, which we really like diving into. I love conspiracies. I like mysteries and stuff, secret societies. I find that also cool. And I, I read the cult section. There wasn't too much interesting about cults, but I'll tell you what, these conspiracies and secret societies, that stuff is super Cool. So we're going to dive into the conspiratorial frame of mind, and then you guys can give your thoughts about everything I pitch, and I'll even give my thoughts along the way. So let's dive into it. So a career criminal bumps into an old cellmate in a bar who introduces him to two of his friends. In the course of a long night of drinking, the four felons conceive a plan to rob the armored car that collects the cash from the grocery store where one of them stocks shelves. Another one. Nine of New England's biggest cranberry growers superstitiously convene in a suite at a Days Inn hotel outside of Pawtucket, Rhode Island, where they agree to fix the price for this year's bumper crop at last year's drought-inflated level. The final one. The CEOs of Amoco, Exxon, Dutch Shell, BP, and Chevron teleconference on a scrambled line after they learn that an obscure inventor is on the brink of bringing a cheap, easily manufactured device to market that will enable any automobile to run on tap water. They resolve to deal with the matter as expeditiously as possible by hiring a contract killer. I've heard that one. Each of these invented scenarios, in quotation marks, is instantly recognizable as a criminal conspiracy. When a police officer or a prosecutor talks about conspiracy, he or she is referring to a secret scheme. So that's what conspiracy is, a secret scheme, at least in criminal conspiracy. Planned by more than one person to accomplish a specific illegal act, to commit larceny, fix prices, murder a potential competitor. I've actually heard of that water one before. We should talk about that one at some point. The planning itself is a serious crime, even if the plot fails, indeed, even if it never gets off the ground, per se. There are political conspiracies, too, and history is replete with them. On the Ides of March in 44 BCE, Marcus Junius, Brutus, Gaius Cassius Longius, Publius Servilius Casca, and many other Roman senators took turns stabbing the notable Julius Caesar to death. In 63 BCE, Caesario exposed Lucius Sergius Callius' plan to overthrow the Roman government, 
The gunpowder plot, a foiled attempt to blow up the English Houses of Parliament while James I was presiding over the commencement of its 1605 session, which might have been the most devastating act of terrorism in history, was orchestrated by a cabal of Catholics. The plotters who killed Archduke Franz Ferdinand in 1914 were affiliated with a Serbian secret society called the Black Hand. Caesar Alexander II was killed by bomb throwers belonging to a nihilistic revolutionary group called Narodoyva Vola, or People's Will, in 1881. John Brown's 1859 raid on Harper's Ferry was secretly sponsored by six prominent northern abolitionists. The coordinated attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon on September 11, 2001 were planned and executed by members of the Islamic terrorist syndicate Al-Qaeda. Even Hillary Clinton's hyperbolic complaint in 1998 that her husband was the victim of a vast right-wing conspiracy was not entirely unfounded. Though the Clintons were the authors of most of their troubles, some of their persecutors did indeed pop up other settings, pop up in other settings, as Hillary had claimed, and much of their funding came from the same sources. So most of the conspiracies covered in this book are different. For one thing, they have a much wider scope. They may involve thousands or even millions of plotters, such as Freemasons, international communists, Jesuits, the Illuminati, wealthy financers, even the Jews, working over the course of generations, and their goals may be as vague and as all-encompassing as satanic. Let us say as the destruction of freedom or world domination even. The plots themselves run the gamut from planting a Manchurian candidate in the White House to aiding and abetting alien space invaders. Oh, yeah. As bizarre and fantastical as these schemes may sound, the schemers seem even stranger still. For one thing, they often behave irrationally. For instance, as a number of writers on the Kennedy assassination have claimed, they might kill dozens of witnesses years after the event, lest they tell a new set of investigators what they've already told the old all the while allow allowing those same new investigators to go about their business of lecturing, writing books, and making movies unmolested. It's a weird, weird, weird word to use. Some of their schemes may seem oddly re redundant. For example, researchers belonging to the so-called 9-11 Truth community claim that the World Trade Center complex was brought down by explosives planted inside the buildings and that those plane crashes, if they even occurred, were merely decoys. And these other kinds of conspirators are less secretive than their criminal counterparts. In fact, they compulsively call attention to their activities, scattering a plethora of symbolic and numerological clues in their wake that are easily decipherable by anyone possessing sufficient patient imagination and high-speed modem. Before we go any further, I actually kind of want to touch on those, that the Kennedy assassination, is I've seen so many videos on that stuff, and I actually think I found out like what actually happened is it's I don't know that is the thing is like everyone believes they know what happened but it's also I've, I've from what I saw I saw a very convincing video on it that it was basically a whole group of wealthy people at the time they did not like the plans they did not like they thought that they could control JFK but they couldn't so they got together hired a number of hitmen put them in different spots. And hoarded him killed. And it was actually a bunch of fails, a bunch of mishaps. And in, in the end, it was just a huge cover-up of sorts. And it was one of the most disastrous um, attempts at assassination ever. And yet, oddly, the most successful. And the 9-11 one, look, planes obviously at the tower. I, I don't think we should skip over that. But there's definitely some suspicious things about how the towers fell, how they, how of sorts, why other buildings fell, where certain people were on certain days. And I'm not going to dis credit or disprove anything because you know people american innocent americans died and i think that's all that i care about so as far as the truth who knows
Let's continue. In cases, in cases like the ones I just said, the word conspiracy is more of a metaphysical than a legal concept. Forensic evidence or even a logical consistent chain of reasoning isn't required to compel belief as it would be in a courtroom. Just a specific view of the world and a congenial frame of mind could easily tell you that. When used in conjunction with a theory, the word conspiracy is practically synonymous with determinism and a malign determinism at that is the paranoid certainty that nothing happens by accident, that somebody bad is pulling all the strings. Once such a belief is planted in a certain type of mind, it's virtually impossible to uproot it. As Carl Sagan wrote, you can't convince a believer of anything. For their belief is not based on evidence, it's based on a deep-seated need to believe. Those who believe that the Jews are responsible for most of the world's ills, or that those guys with funny red fezes on their heads driving tiny cars in local parades, members of the ancient Arabic order, nobles of the mystic shrine, or Freemasonry, are really Satan's authorized representatives or that multiple generations of the Bush family have fostered the nefarious schemes of socialist drug-dealing billionaires believing what they believe about the world because of what's already inside their heads, not because of any truths that are objectively and verifiably out there. That, that's a borrowed phrase from uh, the X-Files, by the way. <laughs> there are individuals and organizations, real and imagined, whose be very being in erates the gray matter of the conspiratorial inclined. Take David Rockefeller. For those who blame godless internationalism, paper money, or some other monism for all the ills of the world, his family name alone, never mind his long-standing connections to such think tanks and public policy references as the Council on Foreign Relations, the Bilderberg Group, the Trilateral Commission, suffices to set their mental gears spinning into overdrive. Semi-mythical associations like the Knights Templar, the Freemasons, and the Bavarian Illuminati continue to vex, fascinate, outrage, and otherwise obsess and, obsess and dismay conspiracy theorists. I've heard about all these things. This is so fascinating. The Knights Templar was disbanded in the 14th century, but it remains a perennial subject of speculation. A number of recent popular novels, such as The Da Vinci Code in 2003, which according to its author was based entirely on documented facts, depict the Templars as surviving into the present hundreds of years ago when Freemasonry counted George Washington, Mozart, Voltaire, and Benjamin Franklin among its members. Its claims of ancient province and its esocentric scriptures might have seemed more insignificant than they do today. Now that its membership is rapidly dwindling and the celebrities that it claims are so few and of such a decidedly dimmer wattage. I actually saw that Shaquille O'Neal is a Freemason, which I just find interesting. I just find it interesting. Yet to conspiracists of a certain stripe, Freemasonry presents a clear and present danger today, as it did in 1828, when the anti-Masonic political party was founded in upstate New York. As for the Bavarian Illuminati, which was indeed created by the Jesuit-trained Adam Weshop, who died in 1830, in Ingolstadt in 1776, but fell apart before the 19th century began, it still provides fodder for theorists on both sides of the political spectrum. From the John Birch Society to anti-globalists, postmodern anarchists. Oh my gosh, there's just so many societies in the world. And then there are the Jewish moneylenders. This is a real thing. I don't know if this guy's going to disprove it or not, but the, there there are some odd connections to how a lot of popular Jew, I wouldn't even say popular, that how, how Jewish people have so much wealth. Most notorious of all were the Rothschilds, oh, the Rothschilds, whose patriarch, Meyer Amschel, emerged from the Judengasse, Jew alley, of Frankfurt um, groomed his eldest son as his successor and installed his four younger sons in the capitals of Europe, Solomon in Vienna, Nathan in London, Calvin in Naples, and James in Paris. 
where they were ideally situated to profit from the Industrial Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars that roiled the continent throughout the first half of the 19th century. Moses and Gerson Warburg founded M.M. Warburg & Co. in Hamburg in 1798. Paul Morris Warburg was one of the creators of the U.S. Federal Reserve. Sigmund George Warburg um, founded uh, the S.G. Warburg in London. And Jacob Henry Schiff married into the Kuhn family and became the head of the bank Kuhn, Loeb, and Co., where Otto Hermann Kahn would also make his fortune. But it wasn't just the supposed Jewish penchant for money-making that infuriated anti-Semitic conspiracies. Decadent Jewish artists were accused of attacking moral and aesthetic standards. Sigmund Freud and his psycho. Okay, you know what? I'm not going to stand by and have this guy try and say that the Rothschilds don't control a majority of the world and did at some point. It's proven they did. As for nowadays, I mean, they could just have generational wealth, but it's just weird that you still see them out in public like they don't have the ability to pull strings of sorts. The English novelist and historian Nesta Webster, the mother of modern conspiracies, who died in 1960, had much to say about the Jews in her monumental Secret Societies and Submersive Movements book in 1921. Nesta writes, I do not think that the Jews can be proved to provide the sole cause of world unrest, but this is not to underrate the importance of the Jewish peril. Jewry, wow, in itself constitutes the most effectual Freemasonry in the world. What need of initiations or oaths or signs or passwords amongst people who perfectly understand each other and are everywhere working for the same end? Oh, interesting. Far more potent than the signs of distress that summons Freemasons to each other's aid at moments of peril is the call of the blood that rallies the most divergent elements in Jewry to the defense of the Jewish cause. Hmm. That is an interesting correlation between Freemasonry and the Jews. I don't, I don't know how I feel about this. We're getting a little controversial on here. Robert Cooper Lee Bevan, Webster's father, was a director of Barclays Bank. Her mother was the daughter of an Anglican bishop. Both were deeply religious, and Webster was something of a spiritual quester herself. Educated at the University of London, she traveled widely in the East before she married Captain Arthur Webster, a district police superintendent in India. Wow. Around 1910, while researching a novel set during the French Revolution, she had a mysterious a mystical experience of mysterical. I think I just created a word. word. Wow. That left her convinced that she was the reincarnation of the Comtasse de Sabran. Oh boy, so she went crazy. In The French Revolution, A Study in Democracy, a book she wrote in 1919, she revived the theory first proposed in 1798 that her beloved Ancien Regime had been brought down not by a spontaneous revolutionary uprising, but by the subversive efforts of the Seculists and the Bavarian Illuminati working hand-in-hand with French Freemasonry. With her publication of her new book, she cast a much wider net, arguing that occultist secret societies, especially Jewish Kabbalists, had been conspiring to overthrow legitimate religions and policies since the beginning of time, that they not only caused the French Revolution, but were secret impetus behind Russian Bolsheviks, an idea she explained further in another one of her books. Her, uh, Her involvement with Oswald Mosley, who died in 1980, he is a uh, part of the British Union of Fascists. She, she she left her it left her stranded on the margins of British political and intellectual life by the time of World War II. Nevertheless, her writings would have profound influence on America's John Birch Society, which did not share her anti-Semitism, and the rationalist neo-Nazi Liberty Lobby, which reprinted some of her books throughout its noontide press. Lined up with the Jews, Freemasons, billionaires, and communists as an archetypical force for evil and subversion is the Roman Catholic Church. Oh boy, I best tread carefully. 
A long-standing bugaboo to many Americans since the country's beginning, we all learn about the Pilgrim's Elementary School, but how many of us were taught about the annual November 5th Pope's Day celebration that were held in Colonel Boston when the colonists burned images of the Pope in an effigy to commemorate the defeat of the gunpowder plot, which was a conspiracy back, back, in, the, back in the old days. Until 1821, Catholic immigrants were denied U.S. citizenship unless they publicly abjured their allegiance to the Pope. The American political movement called Know Nothingness, because of its members were enjoyed to say that they know nothing when asked about secrets, kept anti-Catholic feelings burning at a fever pitch until the outbreak of the Civil War. Its traces lingered long afterwards. As late as 1960, presidential candidate John F. Kennedy was obliged to give a speech to reassure, for, reassure voters that he, be, he believed in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute, where no Catholic prelate would tell the president how to act. Mm. A 18,000-page-long publication called Vatican Assassins can actually be purchased via the Internet in its quaintly prolix subtitle. More character, It points out... Um, Basically, all the all the quotes that um, its author Eric John Phillips, who self-identified as a white American Freemason, dispensational Fifth Monarch, Seventh Day Baptist Calvinist, holy crap! I got to take a deep breath here. Th this man basically he, he was anti-Catholic, and he was he was all about uh, talking about how the Vatican has like hires assassins and stuff. They like have their own obligations and stuff. It's absolutely crazy. There's a long insert insert here, but we're not going to touch on that. Um, of course, America is nowhere near as overtly anti-Catholic as it once was. Even on the militia fringes of Protestantism starting in the 1970s, the Christian broadcaster, minister, author, one-time U.S. presidential candidate and conspiratorial thinker Pat Robertson began to build bridges between his evangelical flock and their Roman Catholic quotation, brothers in Christ, the better to fight their common enemies. Now, Personally, being a Christian, I don't feel as you should have any en enemies, but Robertson said that his enemies were the Rothschilds, the Freemasons, the Illuminati, the United Nations, and the forces of secular humanism. But not all evangelical Protestants are so open-minded. Robert's sons make um, his, oh my gosh, they're not his real sons. Robertson's, oh, it says Robert's son, not Robert's sons. Oh my gosh. Uh, his Eusumanism makes the presence of God Ministries a breakaway Seventh-day Adventist sect founded by an ex-Catholic downright epic. Their website is replete with scorching references to him. Okay. Now, what a lot of conspiracies in here in this opening in this opening chapter. I thought this was going to be more talking about the conspiratorial frame of mind, but instead it's just going on and on about random conspiracies and how you can basically form a thought process around an idea, and it turns into a conspiracy. When seeking to understand the conspiratorial mind, the focus of its, exceptions, of its obsession is less important than the presence of this obsession itself. There we go. That's something to take note of. When seeking to understand the conspiratorial mind, the focus of the obsession is not as important as the presence of the obsession. Hmm. Jim Mars has published a string of his bestsellers on everything from the Kennedy assassination, space aliens, biblical history, U.S. intelligence agencies, 9-11. He's a retired British soccer player and sports announcer. He turned writer and lecturer, and he has discerned a conspiracy of shape-shifting reptiles of extraterrestrial origin. Among them, the most the, the royal British family, the Bushes. What? Henry Kissinger? Adolf Hitler? Oh my gosh, this guy sounds crazy. 
And um, he basically did an experiment. And if you type the words Princess D and Illuminati into Google, within three-tenths of a second, links to thousands of pages will be, be delivered to your desktop. If you click on almost any of them, you will hit pay dirt. Here's an extract from an article by T. Stokes, who Jim Mars proved was a palmist, astrologer, and lecturer on the paranormal. There has long been a Jewish connection to the royal family. Prince Charles, who was head of the church in England, yet strangely was circumcised by the London Jewish community's Mohol, Dr. Jacob Snowman, Princess Diana refused to have her son similarly sexually mutilated, bringing her into a collision course with vested control interests. The queen at one point said, there are powers at work in the country of which we know nothing. The Jews, the royal family, powers of which we know nothing, they're words that could have just easily been generated by a computerized conspiracy generator as by a flesh-and-blood parapsychologist. Wow. This stuff is all very deep. I, th I thought this was all surface-level stuff. But it's almost like if you start following one conspiracy, you'll be led to another. That's basically all I've been getting from these opening chapters. And honestly, has me more lost than anything. I, I, I need more answers now. What else do the conspiratorial-minded have in common? Richard Hofstadter's indispensable essay, The Paranoid Style in American Politics, provides invaluable historical context. Just as the mid-20th century was marked by anti-communist hysteria, Americans in the 19th century did their own share of witch-hunting. Oh, rumors about Illuminism sparked a transient panic in America in 1798. A few decades later, Illuminati's, Illuminati's cousin Freemasonry came into disrupt. Disrupt. Can they just use normal words? It came into fruition. Specifically, the Freemasons were accused of murdering William Morgan, a bricklayer from New York, who threatened to expose their secrets. In general, the Freemasons were feared and resented as an aristocratic, conspiratorial, irregulous elite who owned their loyalty to each other rather than their country. The anti-Masonic political party absorbed many of the forces opposed to Andrew Jackson, who was a high-ranking Mason, and returned John Quincy Adams, whom Jackson had driven from the White House in 1828. Um, as anti-Mason feelings subsided, the mounting pace of immigration from non-protestant countries raised new anxieties. Hmm, very interesting. Some decades later, during the Depression of 1893, a similar hoax was perpetuated against Catholicism. When a foraged and cynical attributed to Pope Leo VIII was widely circulated in what is putative author, okay, put, a putative author exhorted his American flock to slaughter their hysterical countrymen. This is getting out of hand, okay? I, I won't lie. I, I'm looking for the conspiratorial point of view, the set of mind, and all I'm finding is just these conspiracies over and over again. And honestly, I feel like this is a lesson in. If you dig too deeply into conspiracies, you will begin to become lost. And that just feels what's happening. It's just one conspiracy leads to another. And it just drives you down this rabbit hole of sorts. And now I kind of understand, you know, I feel like it'd be easier to just dive into one set conspiracy than try and justify the, the, the means or the mindset of it. Though conspiracists invariably describe themselves as hard-boiled types, skeptical, unillusioned, and cynical to their core, there is much that is reassuring and optimistic in their worldview. Conspiracists believe in prophecy. They have a congenital distaste for shadings, nuances, and uncertainties. Um, wow, really interesting. The illusion of understanding restores the conspiracists' sense of control, places them back at the center of things, masters of their own destinies. Hence the crude rumors pervading communities that feel as though they're under siege. Here's, the, here's what I found. 
amidst all this nonsense that I've been saying, all this, all this crap, there are hidden things about the true conspiratorial frame of mind. And then you throw in little bits like this. The twin scourges of AIDS and crack were created by the white man and deliberately introduced into the communities of people of color to destroy them. O.J. Simpson was framed. The pop star Michael Jackson was prosecuted for pedophilia because the white power structure could not tolerate a black man becoming so successful. Uh, huge segments of the Arab world are firmly convinced that 9-11 was jointly planned by Israel and the United States to provide a cause for invading Iraq. There we go. There you go. That's some interesting stuff. It's sort of using conspiracies are born out of this belief that I'm inferior. There's a reason for this, which could be the truth, but I doubt it. While psychologists may be able to identify specific clinical pathologies in the thought patterns and behavior of the conspiracy minded, the hallmark of the conspiracist personality is a naive religiosity, which is surprisingly akin to the all-encompassing steadfast piety of very young children. Children and young children and conspiracy theorists are philosophically occasionalists in that they believe that everything that ever happens is an occasion for transcendent power, God, proponents of one world government, to impose its will. I don't know if children think that way personally, but continuing, they are magical thinkers. If I step on this crack, I'll break my mother's back. Oh, there's the connection. And obsessive pattern seekers. If a Rothschild handled Cecil Rhodes' money, then Rhodes scholars must all be Zionists. Okay, I'm starting to understand their correlation. They accept that appearances can be deceiving. A frog may turn out to be a prince. Hillary Clinton is really a Jewish lesbian named Rodenhurst. Oh my gosh. And they never doubt for a moment that someone somewhere can provide the answer to any question, no matter how vexing. A parent, a pastor, a third-party political candidate. Not that there aren't a significant differences between children and conspiracists. There clearly are. Children forgive and forget. Conspiracists store up their grudges and grievances and keep them fresh for centuries. Quoting the Roman poet... Archiliosis, aphorism, that the fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. The philosopher Isaiah Berlin famously contrasted the intellectual styles of pluralists and monists. If conspiracists were intellectuals, they would be hedgehogs, but they're not usually thinkers. They're people of faith more often than not, and usually of a fundamentalist bent. The object of their faith is not necessarily religious, even if it frequently is, um, it's, it's more of a matter of their believing rather than its contents. So it's what they believe, not the contents of what they believe. Uncritical, uncritical and credulous in regard to their own authoritative texts, dogmatic and literal-minded in the ways they interpret them, conspiracists attribute those same qualities to their adversaries. Not only do they grant credulence to outrageous libels, for example, that the Talmud instructs Jews to defraud Gentiles, or that Jesuits pledge to murder as many Protestants as they possibly can, they take it for granted that all Jews and Jesuits would honor such unholy covenants. Instead of dismissing the blasphemous writings of occultists out of hand, the conspiracist fears them. Stranger still, he believes them. Because the conspiracist is God-fearing, he sees the hoofprints of Satan everywhere. Mm. Now, being a Christian, I will say that there are footprints of Satan everywhere, but that doesn't mean you need to be concerned. Now, I, I do get this was not correlated to what he was saying, but it is in the, along the same lines. The poet John Keats, who passed away in 1821, attributed Shakespeare's greatness to his capacity for negative capability, which he defined as when a man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts with any, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason, the authoritative impulse to overexplain. Ooh, he, he, he therefore does his stuff. Keats recognized, um, 
that storytelling can be fatal, but his insight was not merely a literary one. As illustrated by innumerable Zen parables, the ability not just to tolerate but to revel in mystery and ambiguity is a signature of enlightenment and attribute no conspiracists for all the privileged knowledge he or she claims to possess can lay claim to. The only true wisdom is knowing that you know nothing, said Socrates. Conspiracism is the delusion that one knows everything. Hmm. That's all for this chapter, but I, I won't lie. This leaves me with more questions than answers. The, the conspiratorial frame of mind se seems to have led us down this, this path of mystery now. Because, you know, we, we, I started reading this, trying to determine how conspiracy theorists think. Instead, I've now been thrown into questioning w what are all these conspiracy theories they brought up. So it's just another one of those things. We have to be careful how deep you read into it. But the conspiratorial state of mind, uh, or is that what it is? The conspiratorial frame of mind, just another word of state. Frame of mind definitely puts certain things first, such as I'd say on 9-11, it would overskip certain issues if you were a 9-11 conspiracist, that the, that the planes weren't actually hijacked by Arabs, but instead they were controlled by drones to drive them to the towers you'd be skipping over the fact that they have on video evidence and from uh, purchasing tickets, the terrorists getting on the planes. So it's all, it's all very in intellectual. It's all very interesting, but certainly cannot just be talked about in 30 minutes on a podcast. This needs to be broken down. So we might dive more into some other conspiracies of sorts, but this conspiratorial frame of mind is way deeper than I started. When I, than I thought when I started reading this, I thought it was just going to be, some simple explanation, but no. No, it really requires some intellectual thinking. They listed a bunch of conspiracies I don't even know anything about. So we may have to investigate those, but that is your surprise topic for the evening. The conspiratorial frame of mind. Certainly very interesting. I don't know if I find it as interesting as football or UFC, but uh, that's that. So that's all I got for the <laughs> conspiratorial state of mind. I mean, that is... Yikes, that's a doozy, personally. I, you know, I, I, I got this book to try and find stuff for the podcast, but I've been having more fun reading The Hobbit. That's right, I actually started reading The Hobbit book. It's a, it's a very good book. I, I'm still so confused how the movies, how they, because how I'm on like chapter four, and it's like almost the entire first movie, so I'm just confused, like, wh why the movies had to be so long, but I enjoy those movies very much so, so, I mean, <laughs> that's just a random talking point at this point. Because I, I, I wanted to find an answer in this book, but I didn't get to find anything. So now we just find ourselves rambling about conspiracies and stuff. Um, but yeah, that's all I got for the episode. Very fun. Very good to be back. I'm going to get back to the more typical structure of uh, UFC predictions of sorts. We're going to find a good surprise topic. This, this wasn't my favorite surprise topic, without a doubt. But hey... Not every episode has to be legendary, all right? We have some good ones. We have some mediocre ones. I try to avoid having bad ones. I mean, I look back to my first two episodes. Those were doozies, but we've come a long way. Um, before I end it, I do want to say that I am starting a company. I'm actually starting it, but I'm part of this program through college where we start a company as part of our classes, and we're called Evergrowing Co. If you want to follow our socials, we're going to be selling some sweatshirts. We have a good mission to keep going, keep growing. Sort of going to help kids in the Mankato area under this one charity we're partnering with called My Place. 
We're very much appreciated if you guys bought a sweatshirt. We're going to be setting up a Shopify. Of course, I mentioned we have a presentation to the bankers coming up. Very much appreciate if anyone donated. I, I don't get any profit, sadly. But um, it all goes towards so, to kids. So that is certainly a plus. So very much uh, if you want to check that out, it's Evergrowing Co. IBE on Instagram. And uh, I have a TikTok I set up. I don't know if I've posted anything yet. Of course, I'm the social media manager. Of course, it's me. Of all, of all the people, the guy with the podcast. Of course, it has to be me. And uh, we also have a uh, Facebook, I believe. And you can also just text me personally on Instagram, Snapchat, ask for my number. I don't know. Anyone, anyone wants to come on the podcast too, let me know. So, guys, thank you all. I mean, I always love talking about a little bit of UFC. We got to jab you with your daily dose of UFC. Surprise you with this conspiratorial state frame of mind. My goodness, I was surprised to read all that. And we spent a majority of the time talking about NFL because I love football. So, hope everyone has a great week. We'll be back with another episode before we know it. But I hope you enjoyed this one. I hope you were surprised. I hope you were jabbed. Ladies and gentlemen, have a blessed night.